Uh, We've been walking through a sermon series called Jesus Said, exploring the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we get uh, one of the most striking and compelling images of what the Christian life is all about. Uh, It is a a portrait of what real Christianity should be. Uh, it's, It's what Jesus said life in the kingdom of God was like. And one of the beauties of, uh, of walking through books of the Bible or large sections of Scripture is that it, it makes us as a church face issues in the Bible that aren't always comfortable, uh, that aren't always convenient, uh, but that are necessary. Um, and if you, were to, um, if you were to ask many, uh, if uh, maybe on the fifth Sunday of your new church, if you want to tackle the issue uh, of sex, marriage, divorce, and sexuality, um, many might say, and I don't know that that would be at the top of the list, but it's where we find ourselves this morning, and I think uh, it is fitting and no, no accident, but in God's providence, something that we as a church need to hear. Uh, you see, I, I believe that we live in a sexually permissive age. Um, if you doubt this, uh, you, you might uh, be surprised uh, by this headline that I saw on MLive recently. If you don't doubt this, you probably won't be surprised. Uh, but the, the headline uh, of the article said, Drivers see porn playing on a digital billboard along I-75. Um, <clears throat> apparently, uh, no doubt by an accident, uh, somehow um, someone showed an adult film on a digital billboard on the side of the interstate. And when I saw the headline, I couldn't help but think what once hid in the shadows of sketchy gas stations and barn-like looking buildings on the side of highways is now plain for everyone to see on their way to Auburn Hills. Um, That that is a picture, I think, of our sexually permissive culture, our casual attitude towards sex. Uh, And if we're honest, this view uh, that is often evident in our culture has also seeped into and is shared by many in the church. A casual attitude towards sex. But also within our culture, not only have we, uh, have we kind of uh, relativized uh, sex and made it really no big thing, uh, we also have elevated sex and particularly sexuality as being of supreme importance. Many today look to sex or their sexual expression as the source of their identity. Therefore, to question one's sexual expression is to question their personhood or to, to harm their identity. Uh, it's uh, both uh, an elevation of, of how we view sex as well as a relativizing of how we view sex. And I think that's actually the problem, that there are two lies that we believe about sex in our culture and in the church. And those two lies that we believe is that sex is nothing and that sex is everything. Now, I know you you might think to yourself, I don't fully think that. I think within the church, we wouldn't confess to believe that, but functionally sometimes we practice that. A belief that sex is nothing, no big thing, or that sex is everything, that it's essential to who I am as a person and to my my identity. Uh, But one one author, uh, uh, an author who often interacts with cultural topics from a, a biblical perspective, his name's Trevin Wax, Uh, points out these two lies, and he says that the paradoxical view of sexuality in our culture, that it is nothing and it is everything, requires a response from the church, and the church must be a place where we put sex in its place. And the way we put sex in its place is by saying that sex and sexuality uh, should be taken both more seriously in some ways and less seriously in other ways than what we see in in our culture. And so when I, when I think about this topic and what I want us to do this morning as we think about this topic is to, to look at it from the perspective, not, not merely uh, as a personal response to the issue, though I want this to be applied to our personal lives, but I want us to look at this topic from the issue of, of a corporate uh, sense of who we are as a church. What does it look like to be a church that puts sex in its place? What would it look like for us to be a church that is both faithful to God and his word, as well as to be a compelling witness in a sexually wounded and wayward culture? What what would it look like for us to strike this balance, to to put sex in its place, both holding to uh, faithfulness to God and his word and yet seeking to be a compelling witness in a sexually confused culture? 
Well, to get to that, answer that question, our passage is going to help us this morning. But I want to suggest that there are two things that, um, that we shouldn't be as a church if we're going to be faithful uh, to Christ in our culture on this issue. The first thing that we shouldn't be if we are going to be faithful to Christ is we shouldn't be a scared church. You see, the Bible presents its message about sex, marriage, and sexuality as good news for all people. We hold a message that is truly good, freeing, and liberating. We are, we are tempted to be scared of what's happening around us and either retreating or lashing out at the culture in anger and condemnation and telling them all the ways in which they're wrong. <clears throat> we, shouldn't, we shouldn't pull back from faithfulness but we should check our hearts that we not be a scared church of what God has invited us into and called us to as a church. You see, when, when we lash out in anger and condemnation, this, this is really demonstrating that we're afraid of losing a culture rather than seeing ourselves as people sent on mission into our culture. We can't be a scared church if we're going to be faithful to Christ and to his message, nor can we be a compromised church. We become compromised either through our silence or our own beliefs uh, accommodating to our culture's belief. Uh, this, this is what happens uh, when we, we look at what the Bible says and we say either that's wrong or that's not pertinent to right now. It would be better uh, to downplay that so that we can care for and love more people. Our silence is when we try to skirt around the issues um, and think that maybe we can get around to them later. Uh, we, we can't be a scared church or a compromised church. Instead, what I want us to be is a church that holds fast to what God says in his word about these pressing topics. And in doing that, that we would be the kind of church where we care for both the sexually broken um, as well as the sexually wayward among us. You see, this starts with us. I think we are tempted uh, to, uh, to look at the world around us and say, uh, let, let me point out what seems to be obvious and glaring sins in regards to this issue. And, and while we no doubt can be faithful to point to what is true and call sin what God calls sin, God tells us to, to look at ourselves. Have we, have we put our lives uh, under his word and allowed him to examine us and to see what is in us and to reprove sexual sin among us so that we would get our house in order? So that then we could be the kind of church that holds open its arms to the world around us and says, come, come to Christ and find forgiveness. Come to Christ and find restoration. Come to Christ and be renewed and restored. As I think about how to strike the, the right tone of what it means to be this kind of church, I'm, I'm aware of, of all the perceptions about the church, the perception that the church is obsessed with sex and always wants to talk about it and, uh, and, and always wants to, to press its belief on, on everyone else. I'm, I'm aware of the compromises of the church, the sexual abuse that has taken place in the church and has been covered by the church, God forbid. Lord, help us that, that we have been broken and that we ourselves have been guilty of sin in this way. But I think about what God's word says in a, actually in, a, in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 6, <clears throat> Jeremiah is calling um, God's people to repentance. They, they have been spiritually unfaithful to God and have gone their own way. Um, and God, through the prophet Isaiah, is, is calling them to repentance and calling them to return to him. And, and I love, as I read through the scriptures, no matter what the sin is, no matter how deep it is, no matter how long it's been going on, no matter um, uh, what extent, uh, what form it's taken in our life, God is consistently a God who beckons his people back to him, who beckons sinners who are wounded and mired in sin to come to him though they are uh, red as scarlet, that he would wash us white as snow. And, and the invitation that God gives through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6.16 is this. He says, stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. 
and walk in it and find rest for your souls. You see, God, God calls out to his people to return to him, to return not to some new way of following him, some new way of worshiping him, but to an old way to the old path of walking in repentance and obedience to Him. And in that path is the good way, and in that good way is rest for our souls. The, the invitation that He gives wayward sinners is to return to Him and find rest. Shouldn't this be our message in a sexually broken and confused world? The promise of Uh, of the sexual freedom and revolution of sorts that's taken place in our culture going back to the 60s through today has promised that this will bring about a freedom, a freedom to enjoy life, a freedom to express yourself. And yet the promises that it makes is often uh, unable to keep. And what God says to those who are mired by sin to us who are mired by sin is to come to me and find rest. This is the kind of church that I want us to be. A church that calls out to people, pointing them to the message that we see in Jeremiah 6, to the ancient paths. As we see in the Sermon on the Mount, those ancient paths are are nothing less than what what Jesus has said, than what God has said in His Word. And, And God's path is good. Yes, Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his path is narrow and even hard. But Jesus says that on this good path, we'll find rest, rest for our souls. That's the offer that Jesus gives us. And our passage today, I think, is going to to further help us to understand what it means to be this kind of church, what it means to embrace Jesus and his vision for life in the kingdom Jesus in, in Matthew five twenty seven through 37 is going to talk about adultery. He's going to talk about divorce and he's going to talk about oaths. Um, and, and really in talking about these three things, we're going to talk about purity. We're going to talk about faithfulness and we're going to talk about honesty. And the first, the first thing I want us to see in Matthew five twenty seven through 30 is that Jesus said that purity must be pursued at all costs. Jesus said that purity must be pursued at all costs. Look at verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, within the Sermon on the Mount, starting in in verse 20, we see Jesus call uh, his disciples, those who would follow him, to uh, a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and what we've been trying to do over the, the last few weeks is to show that that righteousness isn't just merely more conformity to external standards. It's not a dismissal of, of external standards and obedience to God's commands. But Jesus is going to press us deeper. He's not saying more and more obedience. He's saying, first and foremost, deeper and deeper obedience. The Christian life is a, is a, whole, a whole person response to God. He's calling for an inner transformation that works itself out in the whole of our lives. And so to to demonstrate this, Jesus takes something that the law says, and particularly how the Pharisees were teaching it, and then he he gives a fuller or a deeper uh, understanding of what the law says and, and shows us the positive response in a way of what it looks like to keep God's command. So in, in our passage, he says, you've heard it said that you uh, shall not commit adultery. This is a command, the seventh command, basically just quoted. Um, and, and so Jesus here isn't, isn't necessarily taking anything beyond what the scribes and the Pharisees are saying. Uh, he's, he's upholding what, what the law says about adultery, about the breaking of the marriage covenant uh, and sinning against one's spouse. And, and Jesus doesn't just say avoid adultery, but he goes to the root of adultery. Uh, the, um, the full-born fruit of this sin is, is, is adultery, but the seed is lust. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, what Jesus is doing here doesn't contradict what the, the law says. The Tenth Commandment shows us that to covet one's spouse, to covet another person sexually is sin. Lusting is coveting another person sexually. And Jesus says it's sin. He's, he's showing 
that we, we can't just pat ourselves on the back if we've avoided the, the external act of adultery with another person. He's saying, what about the condition of your heart? What about the, the longing and the desires of your heart? Do they line up with what God calls us to and what he has said? See, the Bible teaches consistently throughout that, that sex and marriage are good gifts from God. We see starting in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that God defines marriage as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And within the context of that marriage, God has given sex to be enjoyed as a good gift within that relationship. But sex outside of that context, the Bible says, is adultery, is sin. And the Bible makes a big deal about adultery. The Bible makes a big deal about marriage. Because marriage... God has chosen for marriage to be a picture, a portrait, a mirror for us to see what his relationship with his people is all about. And do you know what God's relationship with his people is all about? God's relationship with his people is defined by covenant faithfulness, that he's committed himself to us, and by an intimate communion. Not only has he drawn us to himself and, and called us to himself and put us in relationship with him, but he's given us his spirit. We enjoy a relationship with him as defined by a closeness, his presence in our life, by a, an intimacy that, that we walk with him and he with us, that he promises to never leave us or forsake us when we go through the fires, when we go through the flood, that there he is with us. When we fall, his righteous right hand will uphold us. This is the picture of God's relationship with us. And that is what God says marriage should be. And marriage should reflect what God and his relationship with his people is like. So to, to commit adultery is to break the covenant marriage. It's to spoil the intimate communion that is enjoyed between a husband and a wife in their one flesh union. Adultery breaks not only God's command, but we see it breaks his very design for how he made us and how he intends for marriage to be a portrait of the gospel. <clears throat> Jesus here in, in, in showing us that, that lust is at the root of adultery and calling us to pursue purity is showing us that all sexual sin begins with this lustful intent with this looking and imagining with lustful intent. And, and listen, this, this can happen in many ways in our lives. This happens uh, uh, in our minds, in our imaginations, when we allow them to go too far thinking about being with another person. It can happen perhaps as we read something that causes us to, to think about being with someone. It happens through the viewing of pornography, which is ever present in our culture, not just on billboards on I-75, but uh, on the phones in your pocket, as well as on the TVs in your house. It can even happen. Lust can be arise within our heart, not merely by watching some adult film, but by watching TV shows and movies which, which have lustful intent, watching things that, that intend to incite us to want something that isn't God's design. That isn't what God calls us to. Any sexual expression outside of God's good boundaries is sin. Any sexual expression outside of God's good boundaries is sin. And based upon what God's word says in Genesis and what Jesus is saying here in relation to adultery and marriage, any sexual sin outside of God's boundary is sin, whether it be heterosexual in nature or homosexual in nature. God's word is uncompromising when it comes to calling us to purity. To a purity of heart as well as a purity of deed. Jesus isn't saying, though, that all sin is equal. You know, last week we talked about uh, anger and murder. Jesus isn't saying that getting angry is equal to murder. 
in the sense that it has the same consequences, the same outworking. Jesus isn't saying to have lusted is, is the same as to having gone and having, having a, an illicit relationship with another person outside of marriage. He's not equal, making all sins equal, but what he's doing is he's showing that whether sin be external or internal, they are all equally sinful and deserving of his judgment. They are all equally serious uh, though they have different consequences and outworkings. And he's, what he's doing, I think, is pointing us to what we're more likely to ignore or excuse. You know, I, I can't help but think about the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and I can't help but think about myself at times when I, when I have the thought in my head of, uh, of, a, of a dismissal of some sin, of, of attitude or thought, when I say, well, at least I'm not fill in the blank, right? I, I didn't go that far. Um, we, we have a tendency to excuse our sin, to, to overlook our sin. And Jesus is showing us that he looks upon the heart. He's calling us to an all-encompassing purity of thought and deed. And it's not only all-encompassing, but it's wholehearted. Jesus says, not only, not only are we to put away lust, but we are to pursue purity at all costs. Look at, uh, at the, the second half of these verses, starting in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In these verses, Jesus is giving us uh, two illustrations of what purity um, and the pursuit of purity should look like. It's a pursuit that's marked by intensity and intentionality. It's, it's an uh, intentional exaggeration uh, of what Jesus is saying here, but in pointing to both the eyes and the hands, he's, he's encompassing how we lust and how we commit sexual sin when we look upon another and we take as our own. These things are nothing to shrug our shoulders about because Jesus says that Sexual sin, to cling to having sex our way or expressing sexuality our way without repentance is to welcome God's judgment in our life. You see, in some ways, it makes us a little uncomfortable to realize what God says here in this passage about hell. I think it, it, it can unsettle all of us, uh, no doubt, especially within, within our culture. And I think it's, a, it's an important message for us to understand that, that God though we, we love to profess this truth in our culture and in our lives, though it is absolutely essentially true that God is love, God's love is cheapened and superficial if we don't also uphold the truth that God is holy. God is holy. Sin cannot be dismissed, winked at, flirted with, pushed to the side as no big deal. God's holiness will not allow us to dismiss what he in his word calls sin. Nor will God in his love allow our failure to pursue his holiness or our sin against him. Will he allow that sin or that unholiness to keep us from experiencing his grace and his forgiveness? Those two things God upholds and calls us to do the same. Jesus says here we should do anything necessary to pursue purity. The, the intentionality and the intensity with which he says it, uh, while no doubt an intentional exaggeration or hyperbole to, to bring out the seriousness with which we should pursue purity, uh, it, it presses this home. It's, um, some of you might have heard, or uh, if you haven't, uh, there's a, one of the early church fathers, a man named Origen, uh, took this command so literally uh, which is funny, his basic uh, view of Scripture interpretation was allegorical, but he took this command so literally that he emasculated himself um, <clears throat> so that he would be pure in all regards in relation to other women. Let me, let me be abundantly clear upon what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus is not calling for self-mutilation. Jesus is calling for self-control and self-denial. A self-control and a self-denial that will look radical in our culture. Why don't you watch that show? Why won't you go to that movie with me? Everyone looks at porn these days. Why, why, why are you so serious about talking about purity? 
Why, why do you take that step to, to put an app on your phone or on your computer that provides accountability with other people in your life? Why, why do you go to such great lengths to, to make sure that, that sin and the places where you're tempted, um, you, don't, you don't put yourselves in those positions? Because Jesus calls us to pursue purity at all costs. I think if we're going to pursue purity, then, then we need to do uh, what, what I mentioned in the beginning of this message. We have to put sex in its place. It's not merely just about external controls and boundaries on our life. Here in a minute, I'll, I'll kind of give some, some brief exhortation to, to how to pursue purity in a tangible way. But I, I think it, it matters how we think about this issue. So earlier I said there are two lies that our culture and the church, frankly, believes that sex is both nothing and that sex is everything. In order to pursue purity, I think we have to fight against this idea. So our culture says sex is nothing. So we treat sex casually. Pornography is rampant. Sexting is normal. Rather than covenanting together for life, we hook up with someone for a night. And it seems strange and indeed off-putting for the church to say anything against two consenting adults who decide to have sex. That's the result of a culture that views sex as nothing, as, as, as nothing significant. But in response, we as the church should be people who see sex as serious, serious business. Not prudish. There's great joy. Sex is a gift. But we accept the the boundaries upon which God puts on sex, that it's something to be guarded and kept within the bounds of marriage. And as we said, marriage and sex point to our relationship with God. So sex within marriage is to be enjoyed with confidence and security because of the marriage relationship. And it's to be ordered towards, oriented towards creation of new life. And so to take sin seriously, we fight against the, the view that would, would lessen this understanding of God's design for marriage and sex. You see, I think this is why casual sex strikes so deeply at the core uh, of, of who we are. To sin in this way is to sin against our own bodies. Because what God intended uh, for marriage, which provides the security and the confidence in which to enjoy and experience that gift, when we take it outside of God's boundaries, we wound ourselves with insecurity. And often with a, a deep sense of, of regret or guilt. And where there's not regret or guilt, we become puffed up with selfishness and desiring for sex merely to meet our needs rather than for it to be a tool and a servant to love our husband or our wife. We will look strange in our culture if we counter the lie that sex is nothing. We will be accused that we are making too much of sex, that we are too prudish on sex. But God says that this is the good way. This is where rest is found. We also have to fight against the idea, the lie that sex is everything. And this is particularly true when it comes to sexual self-expression. We, in our culture, have come to believe that self-expression via our sexuality is vital to our happiness. That it's fundamental to who we are as a person. That to, uh, to question the validity of someone's attractions or practices is to call into question their personhood. To, to perhaps harm or dehumanize them by submitting their desires to this scrutiny. But here's, here's what God says, which is so good and so freeing. God says you are not defined by your sexual desires. You are not defined by your sexual desires and attraction. Human dignity means more than being defined by these attractions and these desires. Our identity isn't staked on our sexuality or isn't pinned on our happiness in our sex lives. That's too low of a a goal for what it means to be people made in God's image. The church has to reject the, the often unstated assumption that human flourishing is some way dependent on sex and sexual expression. And instead... We have to embrace what God says is that we are defined not in relation to our desires, but we are defined in relation to him. A New Testament scholar at Duke University named Richard Hayes uh, shows us how 
uh, this view that sex is everything really goes against the, 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 commit, the, the, the consistent message of, of the Bible. He says, Scripture bears witness that lives of freedom, joy, and service are possible without sexual relations. He says, never within the Scriptures in the canonical perspective does sexuality become the basis for defining a person's identity or finding meaning and fulfillment in life. Jesus says that meaning and fulfillment are found in him. He, he speaks to us in a way that, that presses against sometimes some of the, the most vulnerable and sensitive issues of our heart. Calling us in light of his holiness to see sin as he sees sin. And then offering us in light of his love the forgiveness and the restoration that only he can bring. That's a message that won't be marketable in our culture. But it's a message that when we hold fast to, will be found to be good and freeing and restoring to those who are wounded and weary because of sexual sin. So tangibly, how do we pursue purity? If I could maybe give a few, a few thoughts. First, I would say talk with someone. To pursue purity, you you have to know that you are not alone and you cannot overcome sexual sin alone. Scripture calls us to share our struggles, to bear burdens, to confess sin to one another, to a brother or a sister. We, We can't be silent where we struggle in regards to purity. Then we have to set boundaries. Ask yourself where you experience temptation. What are the places where you experience temptations? When are the times that you experience temptation? And set boundaries to help you avoid those places, those times. Think about your technology, your phone, your laptop, your TVs, the movies you watch. Does anything need to go? It's a hard question, but it's important for us to ask. If you're not familiar with, I would suggest you look up Covenant Eyes and put Covenant Eyes on every device in your pocket or your home. Especially if you have children or you have any temptation towards pornography. Boundaries are important, but boundaries don't change our hearts. So the last two are vital. Not only should we talk to someone and and set boundaries, but we must delight ourselves in God. How do you overcome the the seemingly uncontrollable desire towards sexual sin, towards lust? How do you overcome some really strong desire in your life? The only way to overcome a really strong desire is is to overcome it with an even greater power than that desire. And that's what God offers us in himself. You will want lust, porn, sexual immorality less and less to the degree that you realize and remember the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. When you begin to have your eyes open to who he is, you can't keep your eyes fixed on what is unclean and sinful before God. It it won't last. It has to be broken. It will come to a head. And then lastly, we we have to remember the gospel. That Jesus' call to purity comes with the hope of forgiveness and restoration. This is the message of the gospel all throughout the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus presses home the weight of sin. He also holds out the offer of His forgiveness. And the offer of His grace. There is no sexual sin beyond God's forgiveness. Wherever you've been, wherever you are, you are not too far to return home. Because God's grace, His ancient path of the gospel, stands ready to offer rest and forgiveness. So Jesus Jesus shows us that we must pursue purity at all costs, but also that we, we must hold marriage in high regard. That marriage should be honored through faithfulness. In, in verse 31, it says, It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, <laughs> makes her commit adultery. And whoever um, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24 uh, when it comes to the issue uh, of divorce here. And, and these verses, verses 31 through 32, are kind of a condensed version of what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 
verses 1 through 12 when he treats this topic in greater detail, but in full agreement with what he says here in verses 31 through 32. And so to understand what's happening, I think it's important to know Deuteronomy 24 is dealing with divorce uh, and actually giving some guidelines, some limits uh, for, for how to prevent a man from remarrying his divorced wife. It's kind of a unique situation that uh, if uh, a certificate of divorce is given and that woman marries another man and she is divorced by that man, then the first husband can't remarry her. And it sounds kind of confusing, but I think what, what the law is doing in particular in this case is exhorting or cautioning a man from hastiness and making a decision about divorce, as well as protecting a wife from being exploited. You see, the, the scriptures and Christianity has consistently, through its teaching on marriage and sex, been for the greatest freedom and good of especially women and children, uh, both in the first century and I think to today. It, it upholds and calls men to a, an honorable pursuit of loving, sacrificial care for their wives. It protects women from an exploitation and a, uh, and a dismissal that, that exposes them to, to no care and no financial assistance and to being destitute. In, in, the, in the Jewish tradition, it's always upheld marriage as good and, and honorable and divorce, especially and as something to, to be avoided. Uh, but in, in the larger world of Jesus' day, though marriage was an honorable and good thing, a, a structure in society, uh, it didn't count. A man could, could have relations with a temple prostitute. Uh, a man could um, be involved in, in homosexual activity, particularly with younger boys. Uh, as a, uh, a practice known as pedestry. Um, I mean, it was a, we think that no time at, like our time is as bad when it comes to how far we've gone in relation to, to sexual sin. Um, I'm, I'm reminded Justin Martyr, a first uh, century church father, said there are four things that are challenges to Christians in 100 AD. Uh, those four things are ethnic hatred, wealth, um, magic, and sexual immorality. Uh, if you replace... Um, magic with technology, you have about the issues facing Christians today. Um, there, there is no new struggle here. There is no new battle here. This is the same battle as began in the garden and has been going on since, to which we want to place ourselves over God and choose our own way rather than submitting to Him. Within, <clears throat> within Judaism, during Jesus' day, there were kind of two schools of thought regarding what the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, said about uh, divorce. Um, <clears throat> and especially in light of this passage, this idea of giving uh, your, your spouse a certificate of divorce, as well as this exception for sexual immorality. Some uh, taught um, that <clears throat> permission... Uh, to divorce was a very narrow thing, only for uh, the unique case of, of adultery, of some great sexual infidelity. Uh, this was the school of Shammai. And then the school of Hillel understood this topic more broadly. Um, in fact, if you were to read uh, some of the rabbinic writings during this time, divorce was permitted if a wife burnt the dinner uh, or if a husband merely found a woman more attractive. And all of these laws were uh, often geared towards men, but even in practice, there was freedom given uh, to women to, uh, to be able to, uh, to, to, to address any issue of infidelity in their, in their marriage. And so what Jesus says here, though addressed to, uh, to men specifically, is something that uh, is applied to, to all of us. So Jesus steps into this conversation of narrow and broad definitions and upholds a high view of marriage and, and calls for faithfulness within marriage. If you were to go back and look at Matthew 19 or go forward, <clears throat> from the beginning, God intended marriage to be exclusive and a lifelong commitment between a husband and a wife. Jesus says, have you not heard in Matthew 19 that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Uh, if you've been to a wedding. Or separate. 
this is a high regard for marriage. And it's really the same thing Jesus is saying here in verse 32, that anyone who divorces his wife commits adultery and who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. So this statement uh, is one of much discussion within the church and amongst um, commentators and, and, and students of the scriptures. <clears throat> this exception clause, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, is understood primarily in three ways. Uh, so, so view one says that Jesus is talking about sexual morality within a specific time frame, particularly during betrothal. So if sexual immorality happened during that time, then an innocent party could pursue divorce from the betrothal. This is the scenario that happened with Joseph and Mary. Uh, when, when Mary was found to be with child, Joseph sought an honorable way uh, to divorce her, it says. Uh, it's believed, some would say, that this is what that's talking about. It's a very narrow uh, set uh, of circumstances. View two would say that Jesus is talking about sexual morality, uh, fidel- infidelity within marriage at any time, and that it's permissible for the innocent party, the one sinned against, to pursue a divorce. Permissible, not commanded, but uh, they... In this case, in view two, would not be free to remarry. You see, there's two things happening. It's talking about this exception for divorce, and then it's also talking about what happens when you remarry. Um, View three says that Jesus is talking about sexual morality or infidelity within marriage, and that it's permissible for the innocent party to pursue divorce and to remarry. Uh, Based on Deuteronomy 24, the assumption is that where a divorce is permissible, remarrying is permissible. Um, If, if the divorce is not permissible based upon what God has said, then to remarry would actually be to sin. Well, so what does that mean that if someone has been divorced on impermissible grounds and they remarry, uh, that they should get a divorce? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. It tells us to see our sin as sin, to call it sin, to repent, uh, but then to walk in faithfulness to our covenant commitment in marriage. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I think there's much... Uh, discussion and many committed Christians hold to different positions on this issue. Uh, But what can be clear is that all marriage is a good gift. God intends marriage to be a lifelong commitment between a husband and wife. There's some disagreement as to what constitutes proper grounds for divorce or whether or not remarriage is permitted. Whatever Whatever position I think you take, we have to feel the weightiness of what Jesus says to fill the the significance of what Jesus says that marriage is. Marriage is is grounded in the created order of how God made us. Um, That that part of his design in creation was that marriage would be a covenant commitment, a lifelong commitment between husband and wife. For me personally, as I wrestle with these texts, and this maybe even differ perhaps from our other pastor, Chris, uh, my view is view three, that sexual sin... um, Uh, In marriage, infidelity within marriage uh, is permissible grounds for divorce and that remarrying in such cases would be possible. If we were to unpack a full teaching on this topic, we would have to look at both Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, Genesis 1. We're not unpacking all of that today, but in light of this particular passage, uh, that would be my view. But what is unquestionably clear is that marriage is to be honored through faithfulness. Divorce is not to be treated lightly. Divorce, in fact, is not commanded but permitted based upon the unique circumstance of sexual infidelity. And to understand what Jesus says here, I think you have to understand both what Jesus has said about marriage, the significance and and intended permanence of marriage, but also to understand what Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount about forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, there are, there are going to be some circumstances that have to be handled uniquely, and, and, and particularly in the case of, of any type of domestic abuse, it would always be right to separate, to get uh, the, 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 the law involved and the church walking with um, the abused spouse uh, to, to make sure that they are safe, the children are safe. This, this is talking about the particular circumstance of, of sexual infidelity within marriage. But here's, here's the rule that I think is important. I love this. This is what one pastor and commentator, he said. He says, I've made it my rule never to speak with anybody about divorce until I've first spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. 
Sometimes a discussion on those topics makes the discussion on divorce unnecessary. At the very least, it's only when a person has understood and accepted God's view on marriage and God's call to reconciliation that the context is created to regrettably talk about divorce. It's a weighty thing that Jesus says here. He calls us to honor marriage through faithfulness, that our marriages might portray the gospel. But even when we poorly portray the gospel, the good news of Christianity is that in our poor portrayal of the gospel, we don't take away the power of the gospel because of Christ. He will never leave us or forsake us, and he has proven it by going to the cross on our behalf. That's the hope and the forgiveness that's possible in Christ. So whether we're married or not, we're called to uphold marriage. I think as a church, we ought to, single, married, we all ought to desire to uphold and honor marriage, to to care for the marriages among us. But we also have to push back against seeing marriage and positioning marriage as somehow being ultimate. See, marriage um, is is vital uh, to... If we are to hold marriage, we are to be married, we are to, uh, to, to hold it in honor and to pursue faithfulness in marriage. But marriage isn't, isn't just the means by which we self-actualize, by which we realize our, our truest self. Marriage can't carry the weight of fulfilling you as a person. God didn't intend marriage to, to be the place where you find your deepest fulfillment. Some people are looking for uh, something in marriage that only God can provide. What we must understand is that marriage is where two sinners apply the gospel to the relationship with one another. Marriage is a covenant commitment that's then lived out daily in light of that promise and the grace of God. So we don't look to our spouse for ultimate fulfillment, but we look to Jesus. And when this defines our marriage, we will have true joy that endures. There's a quote that I came across that says, We will find joy and peace and wholeness in our marriages when we stop expecting marriage to meet all our needs and start seeing marriage as a war to find contentment in the gospel. When we start seeing marriage as a war to find contentment in the gospel. And just one last word on this point. As a church, we ought to all be concerned about marriage, but we also ought to be concerned about singleness. See, this passage, Jesus talks about a high view of marriage, but in doing so, he, he shows us that, that marriage isn't, isn't ultimate. There's a, a book recently that came out by an author named Sam Alberry. It's called Seven Myths About Singleness. I haven't read it in full, but um, in reading some reviews and some other comments on it, it seems like a, a great resource uh, worth, worth reading. Um, <clears throat> It shows us in, in Matthew 19, when Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce, his disciples are like, whew, maybe we just shouldn't mess with marriage. It sounds kind of complicated. Like, maybe we're better off not to get married. Um, and Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying, not verse 19, chapter 19, verse 10, uh, but only to those whom it is given. In short, Jesus says that celibacy and singleness is a meaningful and good path in God's kingdom that he blesses. Listen to what Alberry says. He says, while marriage tells the story of the age to come, of the future marriage between Jesus and the church, singleness is now a way of saying that that future reality is so certain and so good that we can embrace it in the here and now. That what what marriage is ultimately pointing to, singleness is saying, I'm holding on to that, that future being so certain and so good that I can embrace it now. It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy, that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is. Singleness isn't a handicap to fulfilling the purposes of your life in God's kingdom, but it may very well be the path of which God chooses to show you most fully himself and to make you most fully alive for his purposes. We must uphold marriage, and in upholding marriage, we must also honor singleness as God intends it. In the last section, which... I'm not going to dive into depth, but Jesus calls us to uphold honesty. Uh, he, he points out the ways in which the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of using oaths basically to get themselves out of their commitments. You know, if you swear by 
the temple, then you can get out of it. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then that's really important. If you, you know, swear by, uh, you know, the sacrifice on the altar, that, that's, that's dismissible. But if you swear by the altar, you know, then, then that's, that's a big deal. Jesus cuts to the heart and says that honesty is what's to define us. Being people who keep our word, not being comfortable with little lies or fudging the truth to, to make ourselves look better or covering up something that would be inconvenient or unfavorable to us. That we would be people of purity, of faithfulness, and of honesty. I can't help but think how better our lives would be if we practiced honesty when it came to our struggles with lust and to the issues that we face within our marriages. How it would, it would free us to deal with the real issues and come to Christ to find real forgiveness and restoration. All of this shows us that the sexual revolution can't keep its promises. Our sexually permissible culture can't live up to its end of the the deal. Sexual expression outside of God's design always leads to disappointment and brokenness. I heard this week a song that reminded me, uh, though not about this topic, uh, reminds me of, of what we were talking about in the beginning, of being the kind of church that's faithful to Christ and a witness to our community. The author's name is Andrew Peterson, and he wrote this song to his son. And it's actually an exhortation to his son about finding his way through life. Um, <clears throat> when you become a parent and you get these kind of songs, they make you a little emotional and sappy sometimes. But uh, it's a message, though, to a son. I, I, I feel that it's a message that we have to embrace as a church that strikes that balance I was talking about earlier. Listen, listen to the words of this song. I know you'll be scared when you take up that cross. I know it'll hurt because I know what it costs. I love you so much and it's so hard to watch, but you're going to grow up and you're going to get lost. We all are going to get lost and go wayward, uh, perhaps, in, in our sin. But the call is to go back. Go back. Go back to ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mast, which is the cross, and hold on, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken hold of you, and you'll find your way. If love is what you're looking for, the old roads lead to an open door and you'll find your way back home. That's the call. Let's be a church that is home to anyone who's wounded and weary by sin. Whether it be broken promises of sex or the deception of lies or any other sin we find ourselves in, let us be a home to sinners. Let our message not be new or marketable to our culture, but let our message be old, even ancient. Let it be found in Jesus' words and on his path, because it's on his path that I believe there's true healing, there's true restoration, and there's true rest for our souls. Let's pray.